You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everyone had a nice week and is staying away from that pesky Delta variant. On to the stuff. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews, we've got Reminiscence. Oh, this film. I mean, the set design is beautiful and the acting's pretty good, but as far as quality goes, that's about it. Otherwise, this movie is just an oversimplified version, mostly because of the extensive VO that handholds you through the movie, of better versions of science fiction and noir films, which this film tries to emulate and just fully fails to do so. My general rule of thumb with these kinds of movies, like the whole like, is it real? Is it not real? What is reality? Is that if I can follow what is happening perfectly in the movie the first time I see it, it's probably not that good, especially if I can guess what happens before it happens. I'm going to leave one of these what is the past, what is real movies, still trying to piece it together. There's none of that here. It's just they just spit a movie onto a screen. It's I expected so much better from the people that made this movie. On to the meat of the episode. This week, the history of mainland Chinese cinema, an industry that has had to go back to the drawing board multiple times due to politics and war and regime changes within the country. Today, we'll be looking at the origins of mainland Chinese cinema all the way up to the modern day. Hong Kong's film history, the industry which gave us Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, and director John Woo, has got its own thing going on, mostly because of the fact that it was a British colony until 1997, and that means that their history diverges quite a bit from the mainlands, and I will get into their history in the future, but that is not happening today. So this is all going to be pretty new for a lot of you, because Hong Kong is definitely the better known industry, but I wanted to do something that was a little bit off the beaten path. There is also a vibrant cinema history from Taiwan as well, but I'm going to save that for another day as well. I don't want to confuse you, and this is the one that you kind of need to know before we can kind of get into the others. So I didn't forget them. They just don't pertain to the history that we're going through today. And with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Once again, the Lumiere brothers are the reason cinema was introduced in a place. For China, this occurred in 1896 when Louis Lumiere sent one of his cameramen to Shanghai. 
The first recorded screening of a motion picture in China took place on August 11, 1896, as an act on a variety bill. Nine years later, the first Chinese film, a recording of the Peking opera Dingzheng Mountain, was recorded in Beijing, and by 1910, a pretty strong film industry had formed. Early production companies in China were owned by Ford Enterprises until about 1913, when the first independent Chinese screenplay was written in Shanghai. The film was directed by Zhang Zhangkui, who would later be credited as the father of Chinese cinema, and Zhang Sichuan, and was called The Difficult Couple. Three years later, the duo would start the first independent Chinese company, Zinmin Film Company, but Zinmin was not meant to be a long-term company, however, and it went out of business when their supply of German film stock was cut off after the outbreak of World War I. The first full-length Chinese feature film was Yan Rusheng, which released in 1921. The film was a docudrama about the killing of a Shanghai courtesan, but the content was deemed too salacious for the film to reach any kind of commercial success within China. During the 1920s, film technicians from the United States trained Chinese technicians in Shanghai, and American film influence continued to be felt in Chinese films for the next two decades as a result. Since film was still in its earliest stages of development, at least in China, most Chinese silent films at this time were only like short little comic skits or operatic shorts, and training was minimal at a technical aspect, even with the help of the United States, due to artists literally having to learn their own craft first. After a period of trial and error, China was able to draw inspiration from its own traditions and began producing martial art films, the first being Burning of Red Lotus Hotel in 1928. The film was so successful at the box office that the Star Motion Picture Company, or Mingxing, which was Zhang Zhangui and Zhang Sichuan's second production company, and they filmed 18 sequels to the film, marking the beginning of China's long list of martial arts films. The nationalist government would eventually ban martial arts films for promoting quote-unquote superstition and moral decadence. After 1949, the communists would continue this policy for much of the same reasons, claiming that the films promoted the worst aspects of feudal China. Mingxing also has the distinction of having made the oldest surviving Chinese film, Labor's Love, which is from 1922. Every film I mentioned that came before this is considered at least partially lost. In addition to Ming Zing, whom focused mainly on comedy shorts before moving to martial art films and also feature-length family dramas, the other major studio in China at this time was Tianyi, whom focused more on like folklore dramas like White Snake from 1926, which is an adaptation of one of China's most popular folk tales. In 1931, the first Chinese sound film, Sing Song Girl Red Peony, was made, the product of a cooperation between the Mingxing Film Company's image production and Pathé Foray's sound technology. The sound for the film was disc recorded, and if you've listened to all the other episodes of this podcast, you'll know that this was how the jazz singer's sound was recorded and therefore was the first kind of sound recording for film. You'll also know that this way eventually fell out of vogue as sound on film technology became standard. The first culturally significant Chinese films, according to historians, weren't made until the 1930s when progressive and left-wing films began to be made. Doing all this research, I found that out the hard way. Most articles started in the 1930s, and I assume that's not when it started. But yeah, most 
Most things you're going to read about Chinese cinema start right in the 1930s. These films are typically classified by their depictions of class struggle and external threats, most notably Japanese aggression, as well as on their focus of the common people. These films were massively successful and as a result is now often referred to as the first golden period of Chinese cinema. Major films... If you want to get first-hand examples of the period are Love and Duty from 1931, New Women from 1934, Street Angel from 1937, or Crossroads from 1937. The unquestioned symbol of 1930s Shanghai filmmaking was Ruan Ling Yu, who became the industry's biggest star with her performances in such classics as The Goddess in 1934 and New Women before she tragically took her own life at the age of 24. Historically throughout the 1930s, the nationalists and the communists struggled for power and control over the major film studios, and their influence can be seen in the films the studios produced during this period. Production company Lianhua and Mingxing leaned left, while Tianyi continued to make less socially conscious films. The first golden age of Chinese cinema, however, would come to an abrupt end in 1937 with the Japanese invasion of China. China's strongman arrives to command his army, and order takes the place of chaos. His is a great responsibility in this hour of his country's need. To him, all look with hope and faith. He demands that China recover its territories lost to Japan. Machine guns are brought up in the city streets and the defense gets underway. From North China down the coast to Shanghai, roll the storm clouds of war, bringing terror to the hearts of the city's people who know not how the next shell will strike. Their only defense is in flight, but where? Seeking raw materials to fuel its growing industries and citing basically the Japanese cultural equivalency of the United States' manifest destiny, amongst other things, Japan had invaded the Chinese province of Manchuria in 1931. By 1937, Japan controlled large sections of China. From August 13, 1937 to November 26, 1937, the Battle of Shanghai, the first major battle waged in what would be called the Second Sino-Japanese War, took place. The end result was the retreat of the Chinese army. The Battle of Shanghai ended the golden age of Chinese cinema literally overnight. All production companies except the New China Film Company closed up shop, and many of the filmmakers fled Shanghai mostly to Hong Kong or the wartime nationalist capital Chongqing. The Shanghai film industry, though severely curtailed, did not stop completely, thus leading to what is known as the solitary island period of Shanghai cinema. It got its name because Shanghai was serving as an island of production in the sea of Japanese-occupied territory. It was during this period that artists and directors Actors who remained in the city had to walk a fine line between staying true to their ideals, whether it be leftist or nationalist, and Japanese pressures. Director Bu Wong Kang's Mulan Joins the Army from 1939, with its story of a young Chinese peasant fighting a foreign invasion, is a pretty good example of the films they were putting out at this time. 
The solitary island period ended when Japan declared war on the Western Allies on December 7, 1941, and Shanghai was finally engulfed by a sea of Japanese occupation. With the Shanghai film industry now completely under Japanese control, films promoting co-prosperity were produced. The Chinese cinema industry didn't begin to thrive again until after World War II. Production in Shanghai once again resumed as a new crop of studios took the place of the ones that had shuttered during the war. In 1945, director Kai Kusheng returned to Shanghai to revive the Linhua name as the Linhua Film Society with three partners. This in turn became the Kunlun Studios, which would go on to become one of the most important studios of the era. Kunlun Studios would be merged with seven other film studios to form Shanghai Film Studio in 1949 after the communist takeover. Again, films that you might want to check out to get an idea of this period are films like The Spring River Flows East and Crows and Sparrows from 1949. At the same time, companies like the Wenhua Film Company moved away from the leftist tradition of its predecessors to try their hand at some other dramatic genres. Wenhua portrayed post-war conditions in a more humanistic way than their competitors were doing at the time. Again, examples of this are Unending Emotions from 1947 and Long Live the Misses from 1947. Both of the scripts for these films were written by Eileen Chang, a feminist novelist turned screenwriter. Wenhua's romantic drama Spring in a Small Town from 1948 is also a great example. The film was directed by Fei Mu just before the Communist Revolution, and is often regarded by Chinese film critics as one of the most important films in the history of Chinese cinema. In fact, in 2005, when the Hong Kong Film Awards named its best from 100 years of film, they chose Spring in a Small Town as one of the films, despite the fact that it had been buried by the Communist Party during the Cultural Revolution for being too rightist. However, the China Film Archive's reopening after the Cultural Revolution, which we'll get to in a little bit, led to a new print being struck from the original negative and allowed the film to find a new passionate audience and to influence an entire new generation of filmmakers. Shanghai Harbor is jammed with small craft as refugees desperately grasp at any form of transportation to flee the great international city. These first pictures of the evacuation of Shanghai reach America simultaneously with reports that the Red Armies, which bypassed the city, have cut the last remaining avenue of escape. Confusion within the huge metropolis increases as nationalist government troops pour in to reinforce its defenses. Okay, now I'm going to do my best for the next part because this is where my general history is real fuzzy, but I've condensed as much information as possible based on the mountain of stuff I read and tried to keep it to what is just relative to what you need to know for the film industry of China at this time. After World War II, well, a little overlapped actually, but doesn't matter, China had entered a period of civil war. The Chinese Communist Party, which had been founded a couple of years after World War I, had been slowly gaining influence within China, especially after Japan invaded in 1937. After World War II, the now heavily armed communists led a revolution that lasted nearly four and a half years, with them coming out on top. Obviously, a whole lot of shit happened in those four years, but has nothing to do with film, and I am so insanely underqualified to tell you about it that there's no point in me trying because you'll get a lot of wrong information. It's it's very... There's a lot of wars in China going on at this time. All you need to know is that on October 1st, 1949, the People's Republic of China was formed. 
The new powers that be saw cinema as a powerful tool to spread agendas and propaganda of the Communist Party in addition to being, you know, an art form or whatever. In 1951, pre-1949 Chinese films and all Hollywood and Hong Kong productions were banned from playing in the country as the Communist Party sought to tighten control over mass media under its Minister of Culture, focusing instead on producing movies centering on peasants, soldiers, and workers. The Communist Party set to work making as many theaters as they could and ensured that even the poorest person in China would be afforded easy access to the cinemas. In all, the Communist Party erected 12 film studios and over 20,000 theaters in less than 20 years. The goal was to produce as much pro-communist material as possible and make sure there were ample opportunities for the people to view their work. The number of movie viewers naturally increased sharply, partly bolstered by the fact that film tickets were given out to work units. Oh, and the attendance at some of these was compulsory. The few private studios that managed to stay afloat in Shanghai at this time were heavily encouraged to make new pro-communist films from 1949 to 1951 and made about 47 in total. Then the shit hit the fan when the Kunlun-produced drama The Life of Wu Zun from 1950 was made. An anonymous article was published in the newspaper People's Daily in May 1951, accusing the film of spreading feudal ideas. After the article was revealed to be penned by none other than Chairman Mao himself, the head of the Communist Party at the time, the film was immediately banned and a film steering committee was formed to quote-unquote re-educate the film industry. Within two years, the private studios were all incorporated into the state-run Shanghai Film Studio. No more independent studios. In the 17 years between the founding of the People's Republic of China and the start of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, 603 feature films and 8,342 reels of documentaries and newsreels were produced within mainland China, sponsored mostly as communist propaganda by the government. Chinese filmmakers were set to Moscow to study the Soviet social realism style of filmmaking. The Soviet Union, another communist country, had a bit more experience in making pro-communist propaganda, so why not learn from the best? After several years of having to send their filmmakers abroad to learn the basics, the Beijing Film Academy was established in 1950 and opened in 1956. Also in 1956, the Communist Party gently reduced censorship laws, even encouraging the citizens of China to be openly critical about what was happening in their country for the first time since its foundation seven years prior. Known as the Hundred Flowers Campaign, this lessening of rules allowed the early 1960s Chinese filmmakers to create more indigenous Chinese films which were less reliant on their Soviet counterparts and had more to do with their history and culture. They were also allowed to adapt novels and operas from Chinese culture again, which they hadn't been able to do since pre-1937. While Beijing and Shanghai remained the epicenters for Chinese film, regional production companies were set up as well to allow more on-location shooting. The lightning of rules did not last, though, as a cultural revolution struck China in 1966, and the Chinese filmmakers, once again, found themselves in the crosshairs of the Communist Party.
would like to give a shout out to the internet and all of my sources for the help for this next bit, because it helped out a lot. And this week I learned I have a lot to learn about Chinese history. Here we go. The Cultural Revolution was a socio-political movement in China led by Chairman Mao, which lasted from 1966 until his death in 1976. The goal of the Cultural Revolution was to preserve Chinese communism by eradicating elements of capitalist and traditional elements from Chinese society and to reimpose Mao Zedong thought, known outside of China as Maoism, as the dominant ideology in the People's Republic of China. The revolution marked Mao's return to the central position of power in China after the period of less radical leadership, which had been put in place to recover from early failures of the Communist Party, one of which, called the Great Leap Forward, failed so hard it caused a famine in China. The Cultural Revolution was basically an out-with-any-of-the-old to ensure the glory of the new mentality. So it should come as no surprise that during the Cultural Revolution, the film industry was severely restricted. Most sources you'll see just said it completely stopped. Almost all previous films were banned and only a few new ones were produced, the so-called revolutionary model operas. The most notable of these was a ballet version of the opera The Red Detachment of Women, which came out in 1970. Everything else was pretty much at a complete standstill from 1967 to 1972. Filmmakers were ousted from their jobs and many were taken to re-education camps, a barbaric practice that existed until 2013. There, the filmmakers, amongst anybody else who pissed off the communists, were forced to work barren land under harsh conditions, with some resorting to desperate acts such as cannibalism to survive. There's an eight-hour documentary, Wang Bing's Dead Souls, that recaps counts just how dire the conditions were in the camps. Movie production, though only amateur filmmakers at first were allowed to make films, restarted after 1972 under the strict jurisdiction of the Gang of Four, a communist political faction, until they were overthrown and charged with treason in 1976. The few films that were produced during this period, such as 1975's Breaking with Old Ideas, were highly regulated in terms of plot and characterization. So, they're a great insight into what the government thought of itself, but not so much how the people People of China were coping with all of this. In the years immediately following the Cultural Revolution, which only ended because Mao died, the film industry again flourished as a medium of popular entertainment. Production rose steadily from 19 features made in 1977 to 125 in 1986. Domestically produced films played to large audiences and tickets for foreign film festivals sold quickly too. Even though the Chinese people had gone widely without cinema in a decade, there was still a desire to go to the movies. The industry also tried to sweeten the pot for the returning crowds by making more innovative films like their counterparts in the West were. Like I said, at first only amateur filmmakers were allowed to make films, but as the filmmakers from before the revolution were released from the re-education camps and others still graduated from film schools, the industry slowly but surely replenished. The 1980s revealed some other problems, and the film industry fell in hard times because of two major issues. One, 
competition from other forms of entertainment, like video games, TV, the like. And two, concern on the part of the powers that be that many of the popular thriller and martial art films were socially unacceptable. So, in January 1986, the film industry was transferred from the Ministry of Culture to the newly formed Ministry of Radio, Cinema, and Television to bring it under, quote, stricter control and management and to, quote, strengthen supervision over production. You know, art always flourishes under more rules. The end of the Cultural Revolution also led to the genre known as scar dramas, which depicted the emotional traumas from the Cultural Revolution. The best known of these, if you want to take a look, is probably Hibiscus Town from 1986. Many scar dramas were made by members of the fourth generation of Chinese filmmakers. I'll explain generations in a bit whose own careers and lives had been heavily interrupted by the Cultural Revolution. The younger, fifth-generation directors tended to focus on less controversial subjects of the immediate present or the distant past. Scar dramas went out of vogue by the 1990s when younger filmmakers began to confront negative aspects of the Mao era instead. After the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, few, if any, scar dramas were released domestically in mainland China. So the generational thing with Chinese filmmakers, I couldn't really find like a source that gave me like, this is one, this is two, this is three, et cetera. But the fifth generation is the first one that kind of gets named after itself. My guess is how it's split up is that the first generation were the silent filmmakers, second was like the golden era, third was the early days of the communist filmmakers, and fourth were the ones that rose to prominence during the 1960s up until the Cultural Revolution. And of course, we've just talked about the fifth. They were the ones immediately after the Cultural Revolution. The rise of the so-called fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers began in the mid to late 80s and brought increased popularity of Chinese cinema abroad. Most of the filmmakers who made up the fifth generation had graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in 1982. These filmmakers were the first to graduate from the program since the Cultural Revolution, and they soon did away with traditional methods of storytelling, opting instead for a more free and unorthodox approach to story. Director Zhang Junzhao's One and Eight from 1983 and Jen Keg's Yellow Earth from 1984 are the two films that are typically used to mark the beginnings of the fifth generation. The most famous of the fifth generation directors like Chen Keg and Zhang Yimou went on to produce celebrated works such as King of the Children from 1987, Judo from 1989, and Pharaoh My Concubine from 1993. These films were not only loved by Chinese cinema goers, but by the Western art house audiences as well. It was during this period that Chinese cinema began reaping the long overdue rewards of international attention. This included the 1988 Golden Bear for Red Sorghum, the 1993 Palme d'Or for Farewell My Concubine, and three Best Foreign Language Film nominations from the Academy Awards. All these award-winning films starred actress Gong Li, who became the fifth generation's most recognizable star, especially to international audiences. If you saw a picture of her, you'd probably recognize her. The films of the fifth generation are far more diverse in style and subject than any other movements in China. They were black comedies, they were experimental, they were martial arts. But what they all shared as a whole was a rejection of the socialist realist tradition, which had been standard during the communist era. The films of this era were for more educated audiences as well, but style was profitable for some and allowed directors to get away from reality and show their artistic sides instead. 
The end of the fifth generation movement is marked as Tiananmen Square in 1989, though its major directors continued to work afterward. Several others would go into self-imposed exile and others still went into television-related works. In the late 1980s, the government tried to finance what they called main musicals, which were based on old Hollywood musicals to, quote, invigorate national spirit and national pride. These films are still produced regularly today, and they try to emulate that commercial mainstream, like shiny, pretty look of the Hollywood musicals, as well as using extensive special effects. A significant feature of these films is the incorporation of a red song, which is a song written as propaganda to support the People's Republic of China. They sneak it in there and be like, oh, it's entertainment, but it's propaganda. The post-1990 filmmaking era in China saw the return of amateur filmmaking as state censorship policies after Tiananmen Square spawned an underground film movement, which is most typically referred to as the sixth generation. Because they no longer had state funding, these films were shot quickly and cheaply using materials like 16mm film, which is the cheapest film stock, and digital video, just like think 90s home videos. They also mostly used non-professional actors and actresses. Very Italian neorealism stuff happening here. Unlike the fifth generation, the sixth generation brought a more creative, individualistic, anti-romantic life view and pays far closer attention to contemporary urban life than the fifth generation did. These movies typically are made for less than 10,000 American dollars. As the sixth generation gained international exposure, many of their subsequent movies were joint ventures and projects with international backers, but remained very low-key and low-budget despite this. Today, there is still a growing number of independent 7th or post-6th generation filmmakers making movies with extremely low budgets, but now using digital equipment. They are also sometimes called the D-generation, D meaning digital. These films, like those from the 6th generation, are mostly made outside of the Chinese film system and are shown mostly on the international film circuit and not in their own homeland due to censorship. Ying Liang and Zhang Yi are two of these generational filmmakers. In recent years, as far as the main Chinese film industry, the well-financed Chinese production companies have also formed partnerships with American studios to create content for both countries. Notable examples of this is The Great Wall from 2017, which was directed by major Chinese director Zhang Yimou, whom also directed Red Sorghum from 87 and House of Flying Daggers. This practice has become more and more prevalent in recent years and is likely to continue to do so. Chinese cinema has one of the longest and most difficult marches forward as an art form. But throughout wars, regime changes, and cultural upheavals, the industry has managed to survive.
that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I know times are tough. I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next week, for our last week on Asian cinema, we're covering the history of South Korean cinema. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.